this morning, we're going to uh, inch closer to the close of our series through Mark. And um, this morning, there's a dramatic turn that takes place in this miracle that we're going to look at today. There's a shift in the entire tone of Mark this morning. And I got to tell you that the shift came because the people were wildly uncertain. But Jesus does something that it becomes the most revelatory miracle in his entire ministry. Up until this point, we've learned that Jesus has authority over uh, the darkness and over demons, and he can even raise the dead we looked at last week. And so you might be thinking, and I hope you're thinking, Justin, we just saw Jesus raise someone from the dead last week. How could there be something more revelatory than that? The most important miracle Jesus ever accomplished was raising himself from the grave. But the most revelatory thing that we witness Jesus do in his ministry happens today through this scripture. We've watched Jesus minister individually to needs to this point. How many of you need an individual touch from Jesus? Amen. Jesus this morning shifts his attention from the people to his disciples and he sees ministry and revelation happen to the masses in one miracle. You've probably read about plenty, but I hope today that we'll look at with fresh eyes what Jesus did when he fed the 5,000. There's something that happens here that if we will look at it from the context of a first century Jew that reveals to them something they've been waiting on forever. And in a moment, in an instant, they see it and their entire world begins to shift. It leads to them laying down palm fronds at his feet as he enters Jerusalem towards the end of his days. This starts to make that shift in where they begin to throw everything into the eggs or the basket that is Jesus. So um, I want to get right into it if it's okay. This morning, um, when Jesus fed the 5,000 on that lakeside, surrounded in that valley, we have to be able to consider, um, I kind of like to consider it really kind of the first like church service, like Jesus took him to church. This morning, I'm going to let Jesus take us to church. Okay. So the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in a boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, The place is deserted. It's already late. Send them away so that they can go into surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Jesus turns and says, You give them something to eat. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, said five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on, on the green grass. So he sat down 
So they had them sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept them, he kept giving them to the disciples and set them before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up twelve baskets full of pieces of bread and fish afterwards. And now those who had eaten the loaves were five thousand men. I want to give you a little bit of context to this picture as we get into it. First of all, it starts with this, this discussion about how the, the apostles have returned. If you were to read just a few verses before this, you would see this is re- referencing the sending out of the apostles two by two on their first really missionary journey, sending out the apostles to do ministry without him in his name, but there is a conduit, they're a conduit of his power, even raising demons and they are casting demons and they come back to Jesus. Now, having done this, having preached the gospel and having performed miracles just like Jesus and, and then, and then even casting demons and they're coming back bragging about it. Jesus is like, dude, even demons are subject to us. Jesus, you can't believe what we just did, what we just experienced. And Jesus is kind of like, I, I, yes, I, I can actually believe that, you know. And so you come with me. I want you to eat. I want you to get in a boat. We're going to push away from everyone. You need to come with me and find rest. I want you to sustain and find your sustenance in your solace and silence with me. Let me feed you physically. Let me feed you spiritually. And that's the context we find here. Because when they left, when Jesus sent them out, this is important to the fish in the, in the, the loaves. They were sent with nothing. It says, as he sent them out two by two, they had nothing with them. They were to take not even an extra cloak. They could take nothing. And he gave them specific instruction on what to do when they went into each city and what to do when they went into a house and what to do if they were rejected. And as they come back to him, as they come back to him, they are, he, he provides food, they eat, and they shove off shore just so they can be alone. Jesus is going to do the same thing at the end of this miracle, and we're going to discuss that next week. But he will push everyone away to go and be alone with the Father. The importance that we see in this message right here, this moment right here, as their boat lands on the other side of that lake, and they go ashore. Jesus sees the mass. Not 5,000 men. They didn't count children and women during this day. So there were 5,000 males present. It's estimated there were fifteen to 20,000 people present on this day. as Ahead of Jesus, anxious to meet him. Anxious to be with him. And it says that he, first point, had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were starving and were desperate for leadership. They were starving and desperate to find a leader and to find relief from the heavy-laden life that they existed in under the law. You see, if you were guilty of any aspect of the law, you were guilty of what? The entire thing. This is what they were taught. And they were a people that were so Uh, heavy laden because they weren't the best of the best. We've talked about this a little bit. These were just regular common folks. And so they didn't even understand the law, let alone know how to keep it like so many of the aristocrats around them. So they walked around all the time with this 
heaviness and this sense of shame. Shame is what, like, we can know that guilt is something that we do. Shame is when you go to the next level and you start to define yourself by it. Shame is something that you are. So you have a people that begin to, not just because they're guilty because they can't keep the law, they've been taught guilty of one, guilty of the entire over 600 some odd laws, three quarters of which regional just to the Middle East. You're guilty of all of that. And they walk around daily feeling that weight. And all they desire is to relate to God. All they desire is to have a relationship with him and to please him so they might not offend him. That's all they've been taught to this point. And when Jesus shows up on the shore, he has compassion upon them and he begins to teach, it says. And in Jesus and through the ministry that we found, the reason there's some 15,000, 20,000 present is because they are finding relief. Jesus said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you think they're heavy laden? With what I just described, yes. They're coming to Jesus and they're hearing in his teachings freedom. They're experiencing in his power over the darkness freedom. They're finding in him a freedom they've never experienced. And they've come one more time just to sit at his feet. It says in Proverbs 29, 18, I want to define the compassion Jesus had for these people. It says, where there is no vision, the people will perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Listen, can these people keep the law? No. They're struggling to keep the law all the time. What they've been taught through their poetic books here in Proverbs. Happy is he who keepeth the law. Oh, so that defines why I'm so miserable. That defines why I have this shame over me. But where there is no vision, the people will die. Or it says cast off restraint. They'll go amok, wild. They will, like sheep without a shepherd, just wander without the crook to constantly correct them and bring them back in line, without a plumb line. In the teachings of Jesus, they find freedom, they find vision, they find sustaining. They find something that they can follow. In it, they find freedom. Because their lives, they have been taught, because they cannot keep one aspect of the law, is offensive to God. They are dependent on someone to go before them, someone to be a go-between between them and God, someone more holy than they are, a priest to intercede on their behalf, someone that could ask God for forgiveness because I am just unworthy. Hello, anyone here what I'm saying? Let me ask you this. Anyone here knows someone who feels so unworthy, so unlovable, that they won't even... Uh, broach the thought of walking in doors like these or the discussion of God because they feel so shamed in life. They say, that's good for you, but you don't know me. Anyone know that person? It says in, uh, that Jesus sees their hunger. It's not a hunger physically. He's about to feed the 20,000, but it's not just a hunger physically. He is showing a bigger transaction here. One of kingdom-sized proportion. It's not simply physical. They require a priest. And he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
someone without a pastor. And Hebrews 4.14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our own weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive the mercy and find grace to help him in our ever-present time of need. These people are desperate. They're in deep need. And they come seeking Jesus. And Jesus has compassion on them and says, I will become in ways you've never thought your high priest. And he's going to do something right here in this miracle that many of us have never even seen. We've heard about it. We're like, oh, that's pretty cool. But you don't understand the way they saw it. You see, when you meet a Jew, they'll say the word shalom. And that word means peace. That word, that greeting or exit, what they're saying when they say that is, may it be in your life as it was in the garden. Okay, may it be as it was in the garden for you. In their lives, they had been taught that they were that the, at the garden they were cursed, and there was always going to be a day. There was going to be one who would come who would reverse the curse and send them back to the garden. There would be a time of renewal that would come, a time of renewing. They would say, Shalom, may it be for you as it is in the garden. Also, historically, they had a period that they celebrated in feasts. We talked about it at Easter. It was a precursor to the coming Messiah. And they celebrate every year at the time of Passover in hopes that the coming Messiah would come. Still to this day, they're waiting on him. But they celebrate a time that in the hand of Moses, they were led through a series of miracles and removal, like through plague, as God revealed himself, into the wilderness. They were taken from slavery and bondage into freedom in the wilderness. And because they were nervous and didn't trust God and scared about what it meant in Canaan, they wandered in said wilderness for 40 years, even though it was a 10-day journey from Egypt to Canaan. 10 days. For 40 years they'd wander because of their lack of faith. And while in the wilderness, something happened. They began to starve. They were desperate. They were desperate for food. And God showed up. Historically, these people who are sitting right here before Jesus know this story very well. And it says that as they prayed, manna became, bread showed up from heaven fell amongst them. They called it manna because they didn't know what it was. And they began to eat and find sustenance. How many of you remember the story? This means yes. So manna comes from heaven because God creates food out of nothing. And here it comes. Historically, they've heard of this message. And if, you, if you've ever been like these Israelites during this period in the Exodus, Sometimes we have a tendency to take for granted what's right in front of us, right? They said, even with manna before them, we're so sick of eating manna. We're so sick of eating this bread. I wish we were back in Egypt. At least there we had fish. Anyone, know, anyone ever taken for granted that which is right in front of you? 
anyone ever envied because you know it's for certain the grass is just greener on the other side of the street. Just check social media. That's got to be true. (laughs) So they complained, and what did God do? In His grace, He provides quail. He provides food for them that is meat, sustenance. Even in their complaining, how many times has God, even in your complaining, provided when you didn't need it, when you didn't deserve it? Let's say it like that. He provides for them. So they have this story of their ancestors that they celebrate annually where God brought food from nothing. And they are hoping in a one who will come and he will prove himself the God-man. He will prove himself to be the Son of God, the one who can bring everything back into order the way it was before the curse of Eden. I want you to understand what happens as he takes menial resources and he begins to multiply it to where everyone finds sustenance and there's even food left over. The curse on man at the garden was that he would till the ground to find food. When Jesus takes two fish and five loaves and he prays to heaven and it expands and multiplies so much that everyone eats and gets their fill and we have leftover baskets, do you know what just happened in the mind of everyone present? It's him. He's here. He can make food come from heaven just like we were told by our ancestors. Just like manna came, he can provide food. The curse is finally being reversed in one person. We no longer have to even till the ground. We have a king who can give us food. So much more was going on than just dinner. They believed. They believed for the first time They had a king that could overthrow Roman rule. They're ready to throw him on their shoulders and march him into Jerusalem and begin the kingdom they'd been waiting on, been told about forever because they have a king who's finally reversed the curse. All renewals happening in Jesus. But see, what they didn't know and what would break their hearts at the crucifixion was they had a picture that was solely earthly. They missed just what he would, what would be written of him when we read in Hebrews 14, or 4, verse 14, when he says, I am the great high priest, because it's not just earthly, it's not just physical, it's eternal. We're talking on the spiritual realm, we have all death defeated in what I will do on the cross, but this miracle right here was the first time you saw the masses fed miraculously. You saw a miracle to the masses and a shift from the ministry of Jesus and it being about the people to it being about his disciples. And everything you're going to read from here on out through Mark will be about a lesson to his disciples. And you see it turn from individual needs being met to many being met because Jesus had compassion on them. How many of you need Jesus to have compassion on you? We corporately need Jesus to have compassion on us because i got to be honest, I don't want to be found on the stiff arm of God. I don't want to be found on the receiving end of Jesus' resistance. He said that pride will go before a fall and he will gladly resist the proud, but he will give grace to the humble. 
and desperately needy. Next point. So he asks the disciples to survey all that is around. And they take the few resources and they place them right in the hands of Jesus. They survey the time and they go, it's about supper time and there's nothing around here. They survey the land and it's barren. They survey what exists, you know, what they have. Because Jesus told them, go, go survey, what do we have? You, you feed them. Remember when, when Jesus restores uh, Peter in John 21, he says, do you love me more than these? He says, God, you're God, you, you know all things. Then feed my lambs. He says, you feed them. They survey the time. It's not good. It's supper time. They survey the people. There's no way we can feed all these people. We don't have the money and we don't have the food. They survey the area and the math just doesn't add up. And so Jesus says, you feed them. Come, bring to me everything that you have. Now, mind you, what were they allowed to take to follow Jesus when they were called as disciples, each of them individually? What did they take with them? I forgot. Nothing. Nothing. So even these two fish and five loaves, even this Jesus gave to them. Even this came by Jesus. He gave them these few resources, these many resources, because they took nothing with them. And these, these men have just come back. Now, now, mind you, they're surveying the land and nothing adds up. But they just came back at the beginning of this journey on the boat before they hit the shore. What were they doing? What were they saying to Jesus? Even the demons are subject to us. We're casting out demons. You can't believe this. We're healing sick. We're teaching the gospel, and they're hearing it, and people are being freed, and we have miracles to go along with the message of you. They are having their minds blown because of the power running through them and reaching people. Supernatural things are taking place at their hands. Not natural things, supernatural things. How quickly we forget they came back from doing that, and Jesus says, come alongside me, let me help you sustain, and let's go to the other side. On the other side, what happened in the boat that they forgot already? Right? How quickly we forget, because immediately they survey everything logical and go, this doesn't add up, this doesn't make any sense, send them away. Jesus, we can't do anything. I wonder what Jesus is thinking. As they come back, like, even demons are subject. You won't believe it, Jesus. And he's like, I kind of do. <laughs> I kind of know what you're talking about. And then when they go, we don't have anything. How can we feed these people? It's dinner time. He goes, what were you saying just on the other side? What were you saying just on the other side of the lake? What do we have? Bring it to me says he lifts it to heaven and prays. <laughs> you know, anything that you have came from him. Psalm 24, 1 says the world and everything in it belongs to him. But anything that you and I have, even if it's menial, is better in Jesus' hands than in our own. All the, we had a series at the beginning of this year where we talked about how God has graven us in his image and by his spirit he's placed gifts within us. And some of us may feel like that gift is not so important. Let me ask you, 
that gift is incredibly important in impacting the kingdom. It's amazingly revelatory about who Jesus is and where our hope lies when we place our gift, even if there's not a whole lot to it. I'll give you that. I disagree with you, but I will say, even if it were not so spectacular, it's better in Jesus' hands. Because that's where it came from. Too often we have a tendency to trust our own resources and our own menial gifts to our own hands. And guess what we do with it? I know what I do with it. I choke it out. But they were wise enough to place that in Jesus' hands. And guess what Jesus does? He places it right back in theirs. You feed them. That's why you're here. God has always been about revealing himself through his people. You feed them. So he takes the resources that they entrust to him because they know that they can't do it without his help. He turns to the Father and then places it right back in their hands. It's not wild. It's not disorderly. He actually tells them in an orderly fashion, go to all the people because there's too much to manage here. We can't just say line up. He says, have them sit down in communal environments of 50 and 100 because they're used to doing dinner this way with their family. But let them sit down, just a bigger expression of that, like they're used to, and go to each of these groups and let the basket pass. You feed them, you 12, you feed them. You're the ones who, you know, the demons are subject to, so you go do it as, as my conduit. You see, God is always honored in order. As much as we can't logically make this whole scenario add up, there's a lot in our lives that we can't add up. Hello? And that's, what, that's why we call it a miracle when we see something happen. It happens outside the realm of the natural. But see, Jesus is still honored when we're wise, when we approach things orderly. He distributed it to the people. He distributed it to his apostles. And the apostles give it away to others. Let me, let, me, let me just get to where I'm getting. Let me ask you this. Jesus had compassion on them, and this ministry is beginning to turn in this narrative in Mark about the disciples less than it is about the masses, even though the masses right here are about to be fed. What do you think the disciples are supposed to be getting from all of this? What are the apostles supposed to be learning in all of this? They come back. Even demons are subject. Come away with me. I got it. I get it. Find solace and silence with me. Sustain in me. Get on the other side. This is overwhelming. We have nothing by which we can meet the need that is prevalent. What do you have? Even I gave you that. Even if you think it's insignificant. And it cannot meet the need. I gave it to you. Bring it back to me. Put it in my hands. And then guess what? You feed them. I'm still about and will always be about revealing myself to the world through my people. So his apostles meet the need as the conduit of the power of heaven flows through Jesus. So these people see their need met. And they, he had compassion on them because they were Sheep without a shepherd. But here's what they didn't recognize. In a moment, in a moment, by the end of this exchange, 
Jesus had given them a king. The king they had been waiting on. And they are at the end of this exchange ready to throw him on their shoulders and usher him into Jerusalem to overthrow Roman rule and to establish kingdom where his people, the Jew, would reign over everything. The irony here is, as much as the people benefit, this message still wasn't about them. This lesson was still for the disciple. It was this. When you see great things that you cannot explain because they're outside the realm of the logical, will you give me honor and glory that is due because that power came through, through and by me alone but I chose to use you to join me in the process. The conduit of my power will be extended to you, not transferred, extended, and you get to join me in the process. If you will, just trust me. If you will, not just make it all logically try to add up, but if you will, find yourself just as desperate as the very people you just petitioned me for. And bring everything to me so that I can put it back in your hands and you can offer the world hope. A hope of a coming kingdom. He's teaching them that when he leaves, and they're not even ready to hear that yet, what they must do. He's trying to teach them that when I am not physically present, You've been called and you've been graven in my image. You have to continually come back to me as a source of strength. And if you'll implicitly trust me in all the great needs before you, on behalf of others, second greatest commandment, just as most important, the first, others' needs before your own, if you'll just do that, you'll see supernatural things happen in your midst. You'll see people gain hope and you'll see the kingdom my kingdom, established. This morning, just as revelatory for them as it should be for us, we have been graven in that same image, and we still turn to him as that source of power. There is nothing that we can do in and apart from him. But I, I must encourage you. I, I need to ask you a question. The first commandment was love him with everything. The second greatest commandment was, was love others like, like, you know, love yourself, like serve them. Jesus kind of takes both and kind of puts them together when he talks to John. He says, John, write it down. Here it is. I just want you, I just want you to love everyone like I did. And how did Jesus love here? He had compassion on them and he taught them, you can do nothing apart from me, but if you'll always come to me, I'll put it right back in your hands. They put all that they had, even the very little that they could logically, you know, de de devise in his hands. And he placed it right back into theirs. Are you and I so dependent on Jesus that we're placing everything in his hands to meet the needs of those around us more so than we're concerned about our own needs? Number one, we have to actually care more about them than we do ourselves. Okay. Like, let's moment to pause and let that one sink. 
God loves you, okay? Does he not? Okay. God fought for you on the cross and defeated the grave in your life and gave you hope and taught you that you were graven in his image and he's placed gifts within you that you can now engage in the kingdom. And what he asked, grace commandment, as he's leaving, John, write this down. Love others like I loved you. And how did Jesus love others? He gave himself up for them. They were completely dependent on him. And he sacrificed everything so that they could have hope. We don't get to that place in ministry when we're constantly complaining about what we don't have. Jesus, you can hook up those around me once you hook me up first. God, I'm waiting on you to wow the world as long as you wow me first. No, not yet. Okay. I heard someone say to me this week, and it was funny, it was said in jest. I saw a friend that I hadn't seen in a long while. I said, man, how are you doing? He said, I can't complain. person right next to him, his dad said, but that doesn't stop him. How many of us are a little bit like my friend? Can't complain, but there's nothing stopping me. I continue to envy everything that I see around me and how the grass is greener over there and how certainly God has hooked them up. But what about me? And what about mine? And who's fighting for me? Listen, you've been fought for. And we never outgrow the cross. And he's never stopped fighting for you. The way that we focus and we really engage like the apostles are being taught right here, the way that Jesus expects his church to respond to the world and to, is to come here like sitting on the seashore, dependent. And we go to church and we let Jesus remind us that we're completely dependent on him. And we go out recognizing just how generously and how graciously he fought for us. And we, we feed them. Hello? We offer them hope when we survey the land and go, they have no hope. And we go, my hope was found in Jesus. My hope is still in Jesus. Even the many resources and gifts I have came from him. I have to put them in his hands and he's going to put them right back in mine. What I do with them is on me. What Jesus' church does with what he puts in our hands, back in our hands, is on us. If we go, I want to I help However, I'm still waiting for God to hook me up first. I want to tell you, when we have that mentality, we are not reflecting the church that Jesus died for. Jesus said that you would esteem others' needs as better than your own. I can't complain, but it hasn't stopped me yet. So, Father, this morning... I wonder what it would look like if your church would actually just turn to you and stop complaining. Jesus, I wonder what it would look like if we started begging you because we see the lack of hope that's evident in our friends and our neighbors and those who are hurting around us and we would place their needs before our own. I wonder what would happen if we would be able to join you like the apostles did on the side of that lake in feeding the masses and a miracle that 
gave the world hope that it had finally found its Messiah, finally found its King, when we care more about what they need than what we want. Jesus, this morning, I pray that you would stir within our hearts, find us humble and teachable and hopeful, because, God, you've given us gifts that we don't need to take for granted. But you didn't give us those gifts to us for us. You gave us those gifts that we might share them with the world so they could see you. I pray, Jesus, you'd begin to break our hearts. Help us to fall in love with you again. And we'll share you with the world in Jesus' name.